Welcome to episode 93 of Running Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Hadfield. And today, Wolfman and I have the pleasure of chatting with Andrew Murph Murphy. Now, Andrew is a three-time Olympic triple jump representative for Australia, but he's also the coach of Australian sprint superstar Rowan Browning, who I'm sure you were all dazzled by at the recent Tokyo Games. Now, Murph is uh, stuck in quarantine in Brisbane for a couple of weeks, so gave us an hour of his time to chat about all things athletics, running and Olympics. He's an absolute wealth of information. I'm sure you'll enjoy the podcast. Uh, I'd like to thank our podcast partners, Fractal Performance Headwear, Goo Energy, Runella, Precision Hydration, Gaimi Allard Health Centre, Basecamp Altitude, Raid Light, Rafferty's Coastal Run, and New Beer Product Partners, Cronulla Beer Co. So we'll uh, get stuck into a Cronulla Beer Co. XBA while we have a chat to Murph, and uh, I hope you enjoy the interview. Thanks, guys. Okay, welcome to the show, Andrew Murph Murphy. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, thanks, guys. Yourself? Yeah, very well. You're coming to us live from quarantine in sunny Brisbane, I believe. Yeah, well, I don't know how sunny it is, but uh, I can see it's got a little bit of sun in there uh, through my window. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what day are you up to? Uh, what am I in? Uh, day three only, unfortunately. So still 11 days to go. So I'm trying not to think too much about that. Who's counting, right? <laughs> <laughs> don't count. Don't count. Uh, and how are you keeping yourself occupied, mate? What are, you, what are you doing with your time? Well, luckily I've got a fair bit on... Um, Obviously, I've got a lot of work that I had sort of, I guess, mounting up because I've been away for quite a while. And um, I'm also trying to finish off my master's. So I've uh, got a little bit of work to do with that. So luckily, I've, I actually have got a fair bit to do. So I've just been trying to set myself goals of, of uh, you know, trying to do six to eight hours of that type of work a day. And then, you know, a little bit of walking around the hotel <laughs> um, in terms of my room um maybe a few push-ups sit-ups just to say somewhat active and then a little bit of downtime watching some netflix and some sports so it's so far it's been pretty good actually i haven't been too bad so far well it's good to hear keeping somewhat active is i think the key and you are i'm interested in the psychology of uh i mean yourself but the athletes coming down from such a high and then heading into two weeks in in quarantine how, how challenging is that personally but but how do you think the athletes are handling that? I think, it, to be honest, having been an athlete before at this level, um, I think it would be really hard. Actually, I think it'd be a lot harder. I mean, I'm a coach, so it's now it's 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 a different world for me. Um, but you know, those guys, you know, they've just ultimately done their best performance, and now they're shut down in a little box. So, I mean, psychologically, that's, you know, that's really difficult. So I know the AOC have been really amazing, uh, putting together a lot of um, podcasts and a lot of um, Zoom meetings. Um, they're literally on all the time. So athletes are, you know, obviously able to tap into that as little or as, as much as they want. So I think that's really good. Um, and obviously, you know, with technology now, you can, you know, do FaceTime, your family and friends. So 
certainly that helps. But yeah, I reckon it'd be really tough myself. I think it's, you know, it's, yeah, it really felt weird flying home this time because it didn't feel like we're really going home yet because we knew that we were going to be boxed up for two weeks. Yeah. So I think, I think it'll get really exciting on day 13. Uh, when we know we're nearly there, we're nearly there. <laughs> Mate, I, I can only imagine having a, I guess, a poor Olympics and then coming back to this as well. I, I was, I was watching Curtis Marshall, just an example in the pole vault, and, and thinking if you had to come back and sit in a hotel room and, and think about a no height for two weeks, that that would be so damaging and difficult to get through. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I think both cases, you know, having done really well and then also obviously not have done well, um, I think it's hard either way. Um, I know Rowan, you know, we had a good chat about what he was going to do and um, I think, you know, he made a really good decision to go to Europe. He needed some more international competition anyway um, and I just don't think he was looking forward to the two weeks isolation. So I said, look, mate, go get a few comps in under your belt and then, you know, you'll you'll have to come back. Who knows? Maybe things will change by then. But um, by the look of Australia at the moment, it doesn't look that way. Stay in Rome, Rowan, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> there was obviously a lot of concern about the COVID infection control in Tokyo. How did they manage it from your point of view? Look, I have to say, I take my hat off to the Japanese. They were so efficient. Um, I've always loved competing in Japan. I did it for a decade every year. Um, I'd always go and do the circuit over there. And um, they're just really efficient people. Um, they really did get it right. And um, regardless of what any media say, I think they did an incredible job. And, um, you know, obviously it was always going to be different. Um, probably the hardest thing from my perspective was um, the masks. We literally had to wear the masks all the time um, and rightfully so. But the weather was really hot. Like it was ranging from 30 to 40 degrees and the humidity was 80%. So it was really hot. So if you're wearing a mask on top of that, those conditions, it, it really does make you overheat. And I'm not one to profusely sweat but I have to admit there were a few days there where I was at the track and it was just I was dripping so mm. and it was just crazy so you know imagine I guess from the athlete's perspective it would have been pretty tough you know having competed I saw a lot of them they compete and they literally put in the mask on straight away and and then getting interviewed so you know I take my hat off to them they're a bit fitter than me now but um still it would have been difficult Definitely challenging trying to interview while breathing in a bunch of carbon dioxide, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> I also imagine it was a vastly different experience post-race for these guys. Like, you know, you've been to three Olympics personally, and I, I imagine that the village is a pretty good place to be after you've finished competition. These guys didn't get quite the same experience there, mate. Yeah, no, unfortunately, that that obviously was very different too. Um there was still a good atmosphere in the village, I must say, but obviously it was very different and certainly way more subdued to what it um, probably was in my day and um, pre-COVID. But, um, you know, even they made the cardboard beds, for instance, so just as a backup plan. <laughs> um, but no, um, all jokes aside, I think it, it was different, but it was still done really well. As I said, I think, you know, the Japanese did a great job. Um, they were really professional. 
obviously security in the Olympics is always going to be really high. And, and that was obviously no different, but um, I think the biggest thing was just the masks. Um, obviously the dining hall, they had a huge setup there of Perspex glass, um, basically in between each of the seats. And, you know, you had to wear gloves in the, in the dining hall and, you know, hand sanitizer everywhere. And so, you know, they really went to, you know, every length to protect the athletes and coaches and support staff, which was great. That's fantastic. Mate, you, you had your best Olympic uh, performance in front of a massive home crowd. How much of a factor was the empty stadium in Tokyo? Is it something the athletes even noticed in the end? Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, because uh, staff and um, like coaches and athletes were able to go into the stadium, there was a real skeleton amount of people in the stands. But um, they still made, I guess, a little bit of noise. Um, in terms of, yeah, it was definitely a different atmosphere. Um, but you know what? Maybe that played into our hands because we unfortunately ha don't have massive crowds in Australia. So, um, you know, we're probably more used to it than a lot of the Europeans who have the Diamond League competitions and and they um, obviously are used to more crowds. So it actually probably benefited us, ironically. Mm. Could it, uh, could it be advantageous for the athletes because there would be less pressure from, from having a packed stadium? Um, oh, potentially. Look, I mean, I, I know I love the crowds and I love getting, you know, the, the clap going when you jump down and run, when you run down a runway. Um, but uh, maybe, maybe it just, you know, for our guys, they were able to focus better. I'm not sure. That's a, it's a difficult one. I mean... I mean, I don't think, you know, someone like Rowan, I, he's been exposed to obviously the Commonwealth Games, which was, um, you know, decent crowds and then world champs. But I, I think, you know, I don't think it had an impact either way, really, to be honest. Hmm. It's interesting noting, like, maybe uh, less level of distraction in the Olympic Village itself, maybe, maybe the ability to focus on the event rather than get swept up in the carnival of it all. You think that might, might be an advantage to it? Yeah, I mean, one of the tips I gave Rowan was to um, just keep a track of his step count because, um, you know, I mean, technology is great. Obviously, you only need your phone and you can get your steps and everything. So one of the big things that I guess I got out of being at, you know, three Olympics was that it's very easy to overdo it and walk around far too much. And a lot of times, you know, it's a fair distance from, you know, where your maybe accommodation is to the, to the, um, to the dining hall and then to the, you know, transport facility. So you, you're racking up massive amounts of steps and, and that can be enough to really flatten an athlete when it counts. Um, and then vice versa, you've got to be careful to underdo it. So, you know, you're, you're eating food and then maybe putting weight on. So, you know, we looked at a lot of different little scenarios like that to make sure that we um, were, you know, giving ourselves the best chance to perform. All those little things do make a difference at, at that level. Can I ask you, um, having been to three Olympics, three Commonwealth Games, three World Championships, um, was it was it temp was there temptation there to party with the early finishers and before your before your event when you're in the village? To be honest, they're, they're really, I mean, from my perspective, no. Obviously, you're there to to perform, and um, 
you know, you, you, you're just totally focused on your event, obviously. So, and, you know, in terms of in Japan, they're, they're really, you know, there wasn't really the partying sort of thing going on anyway. Um, most of the time people were in and out. So, you know, the swimmers had finished obviously in, after week one and, and then they left, they were, they were out of village. So that was very different because obviously normally at a normal games, you'd still have those people around and that's what creates obviously um, a bit more of a party atmosphere, I guess, which is hard if you're competing on the last couple of days and, you know, everyone's going crazy and you're there trying to focus. So I guess to a degree it, it actually made it easier, these ones. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It looked like you were looking after a few of the other athletes while you were there, Murph. Um, uh, was there a super confident vibe amongst the Aussie athletes? There was certainly a bunch of PBs during the week. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was really fortunate. I got um, named as the sprints coach, the team sprints coach. So I was responsible for helping out a number of the athletes in that space. So I had Riley Day in, in her event and um, Alex Beck, as well as I helped Liz uh, Clay in, in the hurdles for a heat and then obviously Rowan. And, um, and, and I really, you know, thoroughly enjoyed that. And Hannah Bassick as well, even though John was there, her coach, um, I just basically helped John out with whatever he needed. Um, so I, I really love, I enjoyed that role. It was great getting to know those athletes and, and, and try to help them in their journey. So, um, and maybe a little bit of my past experience helped. Um, you know, I think the sprints crew did ext- extremely well. They um, pretty much all did PBs and mm. really that's all you can ask for when you go to a major competition like an Olympic Games. If you can do a PB on the biggest stage, then, you know, you really can't ask for too much more than that. No, no, certainly not. No, it's very impressive. And we're all sort of uh, amazed by that performance. Um, what about yourself watching the triple jump final? Do you uh, sort of get the vibe that you want to get out there still or does it just look like pain these days? <laughs> oh, look, there's no doubt I, I love it. And obviously I still coach triple jumpers, um, my son being one of them. So I had a big interest on obviously um, you know, I'm continually trying to develop as a coach. Um, and so, you know, going out there to watch, you know, I'd often when I had time, I'd sit on the warm up track and just watch them warm up and, you know, see if I could find any new things that maybe some of the coaches were doing. Um, I spoke to plenty of coaches there. Um, so, you know, for me now, my role as a coach is more like trying to be a sponge and trying to, um, learn as much as I can. I think you, you've always got to keep trying to push, uh, to, to expand that knowledge and hopefully that helps your athletes become better and, you know, get to that next level of making Olympics or, or hopefully making it a final or even better getting a medal. As, as you mentioned, Murph, um, your job's to produce results for an athlete that their previous coach maybe hasn't been able to achieve. So how do you approach your relationship with an athlete to get the best out of them? Well, I think you've got to break it down into a lot of different aspects. So you've got to understand the athlete, um, I guess, physically where they've, they've come from. Um, so have a look at obviously their their biomech, so their mechanics, um, look at their whole strength indices, uh, look at their previous or past, um, injury history, 
And you've got to get a real picture of everything. And then you can start developing a program that works for them rather than something that's just generic in nature. So you've got to really just break it all down and go, okay, well, these are the areas that we can improve on. These are the areas where we need to go to. Um, so I'll sit an athlete down. If it's a jumper, I'll say, well, you know, these are the velocities you're going to require to, to be competitive against people in the world. Um, so if it's a male triple jumper, we know you have to hit 11 metres per second. So where are you currently at? And if they're at 9.5, then, well, our goal is over the next X amount of period, we've got to get to 11 metres per second if we're going to have a chance. How do we get to 11 metres per second? So we've got to be this strong in these areas. We've got to have this amount of range, this amount of mobility. Um, you know, so there's so many factors to it. And um, then it's just about keeping them um, motivated and, you know, obviously having small achievable goals as you, you know, go along. It's a, you know, it's a long, lengthy process. So how do you, um, like you've got high expectations, have you had some athletes that just don't get it? What's what's the conversation like? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously there's going to be athletes that unfortunately they maybe have the potential, but they've, um, you know, the balance in their life um, is a real struggle. And so some athletes really could be as good as a Rowan Browning, but unfortunately they, they don't get there because they just can't, they can never get that balance right. So between, you know, work, study, training, recovery, you know, physio or massage or whatever it may be, it, it's all skewed. And unfortunately that tends to end in tears with, you know, obviously athletes will get injured and they never really um, achieve what they potentially could have. Mm. Yeah, spot on, ticking all the boxes. Speaking of which, we've got a uh, question come in from Rowan, actually, Rowan Browning. So you want to know what was more impressive, my mighty mullet or your flowing blonde locks on the runway back in the day? Well, I mean, that's an easy one to answer. Seriously, I mean, Rowan, come on. I mean, obviously, my long locks were far better than the mullet. <laughs> <laughs> you tried to tail them towards the end, had the ponytail going, but I think uh, you should have let them fly for a bit longer. <laughs> yeah, I wish, but unfortunately, I did the Andre Agassi and I shaved it and I realised, shit, I haven't got any hair left. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't growing back. <laughs> that is so disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I think the mullet was uh, a, a, a stroke of genius, to be honest. Uh, a few people have said Zac Efron, but, um, you know, he's um, he's certainly done very well and it was really well received in the public, obviously, which is which is great. And the thing I like about Rowan is he's, he's, he loves to have a bit of a joke, so it's pretty cool. He doesn't take life too seriously, that's for sure. But there, there was a lot of hype around Rowan after his amazing heat. Um how do you manage the psychology of him suddenly becoming a household name but still need to complete at his best in a few days' time? Um, well, we did actually have a conversation over this, what we would do between the heats and semis and so forth. And we had a bit of a blackout period where we said, look, you know, let's just get rid of the social media because as much as we need it, you also have to focus on what you're trying to do here and, and just bring it back to living in the moment and bringing it back to processes of what we needed to achieve. So um, from my perspective, it was really just about getting those simple things right and, and not getting caught up in, in, in all the, um, 
the social media component. So, I mean, there was plenty of time after he finished to do that. So he really didn't do that much in that 24 hours other than maybe, you know, speak to his usual friends and, and family, but that was it. We, we left the rest alone. Okay. So social media has really developed in the last 10 years and it's, you know, it's sort of pivotal with the athlete's life now. Um, have you seen that affect the, the athlete's confidence and mood? Oh, look, it can. It can, it can certainly take, take, um, take over, to be honest. Um, it really, you, you have to put it into perspective at the end of the day. And, you know, one of my jobs, I guess, as a coach is to keep bringing Rowan back to perspective um, and, and literally saying, okay, um, what do we have to do to, you know, get to the final now? Um, we're not quite there yet. So he was close, but we're not quite there yet. So let's look at all the, um, all the areas that we need to improve. I guess, I guess on that, like the public, we, we see the athlete's PB splashed up on the screen. And for some reason, we, we think that that athlete is automatically able to, you know, break that record, enhance that PB. In reality, how difficult is it to run or jump PBs three times in a row during the course of a week at the Olympics? Yeah, look, as we saw with Rowan, it's really hard. Um, you know, he was in great shape, there's no doubt. And I, you know, I still believe that he was ready to run sub 10. Um, but unfortunately, the semi, it didn't pan out that way. He slightly missed the start and, um, and that put him under pressure. To his credit, he really did run well in his max velocity and his decel phase, but you know, the damage had been done in that first 10 metres. So, and at that level, you just cannot, um, you know, make a mistake, unfortunately, not in the 100 anyway. Um, so we were, you know, we were disappointed, obviously. We were hoping to make the final and um, I, I still believe that he was he was in the shape to make the final. So I think that's why it's really good that he, he gets to go now to Europe and do a few more comps and, and see if he can run a sub 10. And if he doesn't, then we reassess and go, well, we need to get better. Um, what are the things that are going to make a difference? Yeah, it's good. That's good. I, I mean, you certainly worked amazingly well past that first 20 metres. He, he came back. He was he was ready to another 10 metres. He would have made it through. Anyway, um, what, what, what about the heat in Tokyo? Was it helpful for fast times? And um, we certainly saw a bunch of PBs. Was that useful? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there's been a fair bit of reports already on on Tokyo. Um, they're saying, obviously, the track was probably the best track they've produced. Um, it's a Mondo track. And um, the technology behind it, they, they were able to have, um, I think, some more air pockets or something they were saying, just from an article I read, um, which obviously assists the athletes. And I think also the technology in shoes has obviously gone a long way in the last 12 months with Nike bringing out that new shoe. And then uh, Puma also brought one out to match it. So a lot of the companies are, are obviously trying to make sure that, you know, Nike don't get the, the, uh, the, wholesale run on it so but um obviously those technologies really assisted and you know maybe potentially with covid athletes um were able to do a full 12 month block of training and and that's obviously had an impact too so maybe those whole those three big ticket items have, have made a real big difference to as we saw more national records being broken uh substantially more than rio yeah 
Mm. It, it looked like um, fr from an outside point of view, Rowan was able to lay a pretty significant base of strength in that 12 months without too much competition. Was that your experience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his strength was always pretty good, but it certainly went to another level um, over that sort of 12 to 14 months. And, um, you know, we're able to basically go through injury free without any real problems for that entire time, which is which is important. And um, his strength, yeah, substantially improved, which I was really happy with in, in all these indices. That's amazing. Unreal. Mate, you've, uh, you've been with Trinity Goa for some time now as Director of Track and Field. Uh, how long exactly have you been with the school now? Uh, it's 15 years, so it's a long time. Yeah, I pretty much retired from track and field after the Melbourne Commonwealth Games in 2006, and there was an opportunity um, at Trinity for a director of track and field, and, um, yeah, I, I went for the job, and 15 years later, I'm still there. Amazing. <laughs> you guys certainly had a very successful Games. Uh, did you teach Ollie Hoare and Sam Fricker everything they know about middle distance and diving? <laughs> Oh, well, I, look, I had a little bit to do with Ollie. Ollie did his speed work with me and um, I helped him a little bit with his S&C as well. Um, so, yeah, it was it was actually great to um, meet up again with Ollie in the village. Um, you know, he's a, a lovely guy and uh, I'm just so happy for him that he's been able to, you know, obviously make it to this level. Um, and, you know, we're, we're trying, I guess, we have a pathway at Trinity for our old boys and um, we've got a number of old boys that are, are doing really well as well you know so we had two obviously in track and field make it and obviously sam made it in diving but you know we've got um athletes under these guys who are you know finishing second at open nationals who are old boys as well and you know a number competing you know in the ranks of national level ranks so i think that's really exciting that we've been able to you know continue to have a pathway for the for the old boys for the students and i guess um the, the current Olympics would be a good motivation for, you know, those, those students that are, that are training now and hopefully in, in four years' time or three years' time you'll, you'll have some more uh, students at the Games. Yeah, I mean, look, that's the goal, obviously. We, um, we, we want to, you know, just get um, students and athletes to believe in themselves and believe that they can make it um, to this level. And there's no reason they can't. It's just, you know, having a really good structured program, having a good crew and support team behind them. Um, and, and, and probably the biggest key is to stay injury-free. Mm. We've got a, uh, another listener question coming from Andrew Browning, Rowan's dad. It's a bit of a two-part question. He wants to know what attributes do you look for in a young athlete from a talent ID perspective? And second part, how do you keep the best athletes away from the rugby pitch? Yeah, look, I mean, I'll answer the second one first because that's a bit easier. I think I've never tried to keep people away from other sports. Um, I'm actually a fan of um, students, athletes uh, doing multiple sports until, you know, maybe when they're 17, they maybe can make a decision to specialise. I actually think it's really good for them to do, you know, other, other team sport orientated activities. Um, so, which is the case in Rowan's, he, he did rugby until he was basically in year 11. 
um, and then he made the decision to, you know, specialize into track and field. So um, most of the, the athletes that I work with, I try to encourage them to, you know, keep doing something else. I think, I think it's really important. Um, so hopefully that answers that question. But, and the other one, um, can you, can you tell me the other one again? Just, just what are you looking for in a young athlete coming into the school? Oh, development. Yep. Yep. Um, look at that. It's hard. I mean, obviously genetics is one thing, but I think I'm looking for athletes that will buy in, um, to training and, and being committed. Um, cause you never really know. Um, obviously genetics does play a, a big role, but I, I think you have to get the athlete to love the sport and, uh, and want to do the sport. Because it doesn't matter that I want them to do it; they've got to want to do it. Mm-hmm. So I think that buy-in, I think that buy-in is really important. Um, you know, having done 15 years in a school, I think that's the biggest thing that I see is that you've got to have an athlete that, if you're going to have a relationship to build a, a you know, a career in the sport, then you have to, I guess have someone who's going to be prepared to do everything necessary in terms of those one percenters, you know, do the mobility work, do the self-treatment work, because there's so much that goes um, behind the scenes to have success in this sport. It's not just about the training. The training's one thing. Um, it's all the other stuff that's the hard stuff. Mm, for sure. And then I guess speaking about internal versus external motivation, how, how do you go coaching your son, Connor, very modest, talking about the silver in the Aussie Opens there that's actually young bloke in the triple jump. Um, yeah, how do you go from that perspective? Um, we've got a great relationship, Connor and I. Um, even though I'm his dad, um, I treat him no differently than anyone in the group uh, when, we're, when we're training. Um, and if anything, to be honest, he's made me a better coach because – I guess to a degree, I coach everyone as if they're my kids. Um, so I really do make sure that what I'm prescribing is um, the best thing for them. Um, so we're not doing junk for the sake of doing it. So as I program my my athletes, um, I'm always looking at why am I doing this? Uh, do I need to do this? Um, so I, I really try to get rid of as much basically junk out of the program. So we're, we're doing, um, what's necessary. And I've found ironically after, you know, obviously having coached it for 15 years, quite large numbers at Trinity is that less is often more. Um, and it's, you'd be surprised how little, um, a lot of my guys do, they don't do massive volumes, but what we do try to do is do it really well. How um how much would Rowan, for example, during the course of a normal week, how often would he be at top speed? Like, you know, we're talking meters, I guess, during the week. Yeah, max velocity. Um, we're probably looking at a big session of max velocity. Maybe 160 meters. <laughs> That's unbelievable for a long distance run. Maybe 200. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Um, well, 
because in sprinting you're training the three distinct areas so your acceleration your maximum velocity and your say deceleration say call it speed endurance so you know speed endurance you're not really hitting max velocity um acceleration you're not hitting max velocity um so the one session a week that we do at max velocity is, you know, maybe you could say 60s, but really of that 60 meters, there's only 20 meters that actually is max velocity. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. If, you do, if, if you do eight repetitions, you know, that's 160 meters. That's serious quality of max of quality work, isn't it? Unbelievable. So you, you, <laughs> you obviously had a, a long career um what's what are, what are your tips and that your takeaways that you pass on to Rowan to avoid injury yeah look I think um it's looking at all the areas that each athlete has maybe you know that every athlete has certain things that um traits that genetically maybe they need to improve or they've got to work on so, and they're very, and this is where it's really essential to work in with a, a really good physio because you need to ascertain, okay, this athlete has these issues, which we're going to have to put into a, a rehab program or prehab program. So we'll have a day just dedicated to doing prehab, rehab type exercises. Um, and then on top of that, there might be other things that have to be in at, in every session a form of mobility or, or, you know, whatever it may be, there'll be, you know, something that those athletes always have to work on. But if they don't, they're going to probably break down, um, including obviously things like pool recovery stuff, um, uh, making sure that you have enough rest in between your training sessions, not getting too um, fixated on oh, this is what the program says, so I have to do it. Um, so we implemented about three years ago a program called HRV, um, HRV for training. Um, we're not sponsored by them, but I think it's a great product. And um, so we're constantly looking at their heart rate variability and comparing it with their training and all their KPIs to determine whether or not we should change the session for the day. Um, so, you know, that... Is, has been really important for injury prevention. Um, probably the number one thing that I see in successful athletes in my career, like your Kathy Freemans, uh, they're successful because they're able to go for long extended periods without being injured. Um, and that is the big ticket item. That's the goal. Try to do um, as much as you can without getting injured. <laughs> That, that, that leads me on to a celebrity listener question, actually. This is coming in, funnily enough, from Victor Sineov. So uh, in such a taxing sport as triple jump, how were you personally able to stay at such a high standard for so long? Yeah, I think it's all about layering and that consistency. So, you know, I was really fortunate. I was a young jumper. I had a lot of speed. Um, I ran 1060 as a, as a junior athlete. So I was super fast. My technical model wasn't very good, though, because um, I never did a lot of plyometrics. Um, I found that doing too many plyometrics, I just got injured. Um, so for me, I was able to jump 17 metres as a 19-year-old. As a and um, 
Yeah, I think 17, 18 as a 19 year old. And unfortunately my PB was only 17.32. So I, um, I didn't improve a lot over my career from that point, but what I did do is I improved my consistency. So I was able to jump between 1680 and say 1730 um, on, on regular, regular times throughout each year at each season, which enabled me to be, I guess, at a higher level for a long time. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I'd trade it, but I wish I could have jumped 1760 or 70. I think I was capable, but unfortunately I just never got there. Uh, I think my technique probably cost me in the end. I think I had the speed to jump further, but yeah, unfortunately I just couldn't do the volume of plyometrics that, you know, a lot of um, athletes did. I, I just found that I'd break down. Mm. I've got um, before the next listener question, just a, a couple of PBs to chuck out there. So, Listeners, Murph has run about a 10.4 for the 100 and jumped 7.80-odd for the long jump. And so this is coming from Peter Hadfield. With such solid PBs in the 100 and the long jump, did you ever consider coming over and trying a real sport like the decathlon? <laughs> um, look, I have to take my hat off to the decathletes and heptathletes. Um, it's an incredibly tough um, event and... Um, you know, I don't know how they do it, to be honest. It's just so time-consuming having to do all those different events in a week. Um, and, um, yeah, look, I, I don't think – the main reason I wouldn't have done it was because couldn't pole vault. No way. <laughs> and I certainly can't throw. <laughs> you can learn these things, mate. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, uh, this is another one coming from overseas from our good friend Ivan Progioso. He wants to know, what is it about us Cubans that make us such good jumpers? Is it the spicy food, the good rum, or the communist regime telling us how high to jump? Oh, geez, that's a good one. It might be the spice, but I actually were very fortunate that we travelled to Cuba for a training camp back in the late 90s. And um, the reason they're so good is because they have an incredible system um, in place where their younger athletes start doing a lot of plyometric bounding very young. So they have a really efficient technique um, and it's incredible. It's like a jumps factory there. really is amazing. It is amazing. I mean, they're, they're not, not too good at lots of other sports, but their jumps are just out of this world. It's... Yeah, yeah. And, and the main reason is because they just have a really good um, basic knowledge of plyometrics at a young age. They get that really, really, they do the simple things well, like I said earlier, and, and that's one of them, the plyometrics. So as a result of the Cuban program, I implemented that into Trinity's program and every kid uh, from about eight, nine years of age learns how to, you know, bound and hop and things like that, which have yeah. really gone out of our, it's just gone out of society these days. Like no one hops. It's mm. amazing. It's uh, much easier to hop on an iPad, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the great things about this Olympics was the spread of medals across lots of different countries. Um, do, you, do you put that down to, I guess, shared knowledge across the globe or, I mean, the Americans or the Jamaicans? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously technology has advanced so much and with the, you know, internet being the way it is, there's so much information out there now. So, you know, that's 
very accessible to people and um, you know obviously coaches maybe more than ever are, are communicating together which is really important I had a zoom meeting today for instance with um, Paul Burgess uh, and we we're talking about the Povolt crew and you know obviously I said I'm more than happy to help you know anytime with you know their running mechanics and and anything so I think we're all getting together a lot more um, to to you know try to get better at the end of the day, we're trying to be the best we can for Australia and um, get the best possible results. So hopefully that continues on. And maybe COVID's had a thing to do with that. There's been more Zoom meetings, you know, people have got together and there's a lot more communication than there was in the past. I've got a bit of a scenario for you. You're uh, competing in the Tokyo Triple Jump personally. You've been knocked out of the final by a Russian Olympic Committee athlete. How uh, how fired up are you about that guy getting in front of you at this point? Gee, that's a, that's a good one. Um, yeah, look, I mean, it's it's a tough one when they're banned, um, Russia. Yet they've still got you know a number of obviously athletes out there competing. I know that you know obviously not necessarily every athlete's taking uh, you know performance enhancing drugs um but still it is hard to swallow isn't it when they come out and um you know do pretty well on the middle tally um but supposedly all those people who competed have been in the um the testing protocols that um wider have in place i believe so i'm not 100 percent familiar with that whole process but um yeah there's nevertheless it was it'd still be very tough yeah i'm sure he did well. Oh, I want to ask a little bit of a cheeky follow-up question to that. And uh, what sort of magical pasta have the Italians been eating to suddenly become a sprinting powerhouse? Yeah, well, I know. I have to take my hat off to them. The Italians have done incredibly well. I mean, I don't think anyone in the world saw that coming. Um, I think after the US trials, we saw a one, two, three for the for the States, um, but the States really struggled. Certainly the, the men's team, they really struggled. And you know, maybe we could put that down to they flew in quite late to the village, I think five days before. And with the time zone, it's a massive time zone change, um, the US to Japan. Um, so, you know, maybe they just underestimated that and it, it just took that 1% off and that's all it takes at this level. But, you know, getting back onto Italians, you know, I love the Italians because my wife's uh, actually got an Italian passport. So, um, and my kids actually have, you know, a dual uh, Italian passport as well. So, you know, go uh, Viva Italia. <laughs> you're there. You, you definitely want to get back to the country, don't you? <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's unreal. Can I, can I just ask one 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 question about um, Rowan? Seeing him um, up there, like shoulder to shoulder with the big dogs, is, is there a talk about confidence of being, you know, on on the on the field, you know, you know, shoulder to shoulder with those people that he probably probably idolises, and um, and he looked he looked totally at ease. He looked he looked part of the part of the big picture. I don't know if it was the mullet, but he, he seemed really confident. What's what's the conversation you have with him to say that, you know, you deserve to be there, you, you should be rubbing shoulders with these guys? Yeah, it's a good one. I think the mullet scared him, to be honest. I think they went, who the hell's this with a mullet? Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, to, be, to be honest, um, 
I think that process comes from performance at the end of the day. So, um, you know, Rowan, having run 996 back in Wollongong, um, which was only the second race of the season, it was windy, obviously, but still, you've still got to do it. Your body still has to has to run that fast. So, and it does remember, the body does remember. So you, you do get that motor patterning. Um, and then as a result of that, we all saw how many times you ran sub 1010. So that's, that's a process that that confidence comes with performance. So then when you, you stand out on the track, you go, well, you know, hang on a minute. These guys aren't running any faster than me. So, you know, you can respect someone, but you can also want to beat them and believe you can beat them. And I I truly believe that, you know, Rome was in a really good headspace going into the Olympics. Um, He believed in himself and rightfully so he'd run fast enough. And he's, I think his world rankings just gone into the top 15 in the world, which is amazing for the hundred meters. So, um, you know, he's starting to believe in himself. And I really think as long as we can stay injury free, I think the next three years could be, you know, really special for, for sprinting for Rowan, but hopefully for sprinting for Australia across the board, not just Rowan, but, you know, Riley and Alec Beck and Steve Solomon and all of these type of names can, you know, really do well and start to, you know, get, get amongst it. Mm, it's certainly great to watch from the outside and congratulations on a really amazing Olympic uh, campaign from yourself, Rowan, and, and all the other fast guys there. Uh, really impressive to watch. And thanks so much for your time on the podcast, Murph. It's been great to chat. Um, lots of great insight for our listeners, mate. Yeah, thanks, Matt and Paul. Really enjoyed it. Hopefully um, hopefully that your viewers get something out of it. Thank you. Well, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks again. Really appreciate it. Good luck with the next 11 days, mate. I hope uh, the descent into madness is slow and smooth. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Well, uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. Enjoy. See you soon, mate. Yeah. Cheers, guys. Thanks. Bye.